Christmas. Hope you are well, and I am eager to open God's Word with you this morning. As always, it is good uh, to be under uh, the Word that the Lord has given us, and it's wonderful always to learn more of Him, to learn more of ourselves, and to learn more of our Redeemer, whose name is Christ. And so, if you would, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Join me in going to our faithful Father, who is always good to us when we open his word. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as is always true, and we need to be reminded of when we come to your word or when we come before you anytime, it's only because of your grace and mercy. It's because of your faithfulness to us. It's because of your steadfast love to us. And all of that, is shown and demonstrated most pointedly to us in what Christ has done in our place. So we come to you, having been given a new name and covered in the blood and righteousness of your Son. And we pray that you'd be with us yet again as we open the Bible. Show up here in this place now. Use me as your instrument, as the preacher of your word, and pour your spirit out on all of us. That we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. That we would be teachable, that we would be humble as we come to sit under your word. We pray that you would use even this time in the scriptures to shape and fashion us. Impart faith to many. Sustain the faith and nourish the faith of the saints, we pray. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this Genesis series, Rob mentioned it earlier in the service. This series has been good. It's been good for me. I've enjoyed the study uh, the prep has been hard work, but I know it's been a blessing for me each week, even as I wrestle with the scriptures and process them and prepare to preach. And I've heard a from a number of you that this sermon series has been good. It's been enjoyable. We've learned a lot together, and I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful to God for his grace to us in that way. One of the main takeaways from Genesis thus far is that our God is utterly faithful. Honestly, that's a takeaway from any book of the scriptures. The scripture is a testimony of God's faithfulness to us. He is a God of steadfast love, of covenant love, that he never breaks. He never stops. He never ceases loving his people. That's been put on display over and over and over again, week after week after week after week. We have seen the steadfast love of God for sinners. May we always be nourished by that. May we be sustained by that. Whether life is going well or life is going poorly from our perspective. May that nourishment and that sustenance occur for us today as we look to the scriptures. And perhaps you're here today and you've never consciously anyway trusted in the promises of this utterly faithful God. Well, may today be the day for that as well. We're back in Genesis today. As you know, you heard the scripture read to you earlier from Genesis chapter 28 and verse 1 through chapter 30 and verse 24. That is where we're going to be spending our time together today. Sermon title for this morning. I don't always give these. Obviously, they're printed in the bulletins. Certain promises and broken vessels. Certain promises and broken vessels. My plan for today is to consider the text in five points and then offer a Closing reflection, and you're like, well, brother, is that not six points? Sure, that works better in your mind. It's a six-point message. Here we go, point number one. 
Point number one will be relatively brief. We're going to be looking at chapter 28, verses 1 to 9. Point one entitled, Isaac and his sons. Isaac and his sons. If you put your eyes on chapter 28 and verse 1, we see there that Isaac calls Jacob to himself and blesses Jacob on purpose. Like intentionally. If you were here last week, you realized that he blessed Jacob unintentionally. Today, we're seeing that he blesses Jacob, meaning to do so. That's new. And that's good that he would do so. And he gives his son some direction. In verse 2, he instructs Jacob to go to Paddan Aram, to Laban's household, that's Jacob's mother's brother, in order to find a wife. And then in verses 3 and 4, he blesses Jacob. He says, may God Almighty bless and multiply him. May God give Jacob the blessing of Abraham to him and to his offspring. This entails taking possession of the land that God has promised to give. Then in verse 5, Isaac sends Jacob away. Now in verse 6, Esau comes back into the picture. In verses 6 and 7, we see how Esau observes all this. He sees how Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him away, and how Isaac particularly instructed Jacob not to take a Canaanite woman as a wife. Now you remember from last week perhaps that Esau has already married two Canaanite women, and it hadn't gone well. It had caused pain in the family. Verses 8 and 9, so Esau goes to Ishmael. Isaac has, has already told Jacob to go to Jacob's mother's brother. So Esau says, well, I'll go to my dad's half-brother. Going to my uncle Esau, Ishmael, excuse me, and I will marry one of his daughters. It seems as you read the text that this might be an attempt on the part of Esau to rebuild some bridges with his parents. This has gone well for Jacob. Maybe it will go well for me if I do this too. Maybe it will at least mend some things with mom and dad on the home front. It is interesting in all of this, though, that even with Esau trying to do something better than maybe he did before in marrying the two Canaanite women, he goes to Ishmael, of all people. He goes to Ishmael, who, as we know, was not a part of God's covenant. It's interesting how these things happen in the scripture. Esau is going to leave the picture for quite a while. He will not show up again for a number of chapters. We know that he stays in the land and that he will be there when Jacob comes back. Many may be familiar, a number of chapters down the road. When Jacob is coming back after his like 14 years away, He's afraid that Esau still will want to harm him. And we will find out down the road that Esau has buried the hatchet and is actually going to be happy to see his brother. But that is another sermon for another day. That was point one, Isaac and his sons. Just very brief, just trying to giving us an understanding there of what's going on and why it is that Jacob, in leaving town, right, he had to leave town because things were terrible in the household. But in doing this, his father Isaac blesses him and gives him some direction. Which brings us to point number two. Jacob is now on his way, but he's going to have this dream. So from chapter 28, verses 10 to 22, we will consider point two, Jacob's dream. So these verses, beginning in verse 10, begin what could rightly be called Jacob's exile. He's forced, right, because of sin, he's forced out of the land, and he will be gone for a period of years, and then will return. This is a period of his life where he will be out of the land that has been promised to his fathers and to him and will later be brought back to 
this land. There is a strong pattern in the scriptures of exile and then return from exile. It happens over and over again, where God's people are forced out of the land that God has given them or out of the land that God has promised them, and then they return. Think about earlier in Genesis, chapter 12, right? Abraham and Sarah were forced out of the land because of famine. They had to go down into Egypt. They were there for a while. Then they were brought back. We have this situation here with Jacob. He is exiled from the land because of what's going on with his family. He will come back later. Then think about the whole nation of Israel. Jacob's family as it's growing and expanding. They are exiled again because of famine, driven out of the land to Egypt a second time. And we know that story. Many of us do. They would be in slavery for hundreds of years there in Egypt. And their return from that exile is marked by the Exodus, which is the second greatest deliverance event in all of the Scripture. Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, we know, would be exiled to Babylon many years later. They would be brought back from Babylon to the land. Though things would never be the same. They would never be like they were before. All of this stuff, this pattern, this significant pattern of exile and return from exile. No shock to anyone in the room, I trust, finds its fulfillment where? Ultimately, yes, in the new heavens and the new earth, as God's people are brought there. But even in time and space before that, where is that fulfilled? It's fulfilled in Christ. You may ask, how? Well, at the transfiguration of Jesus, Luke chapter 9, many are familiar with that passage. Jesus has a conversation with Elijah and with Moses. In that conversation, Jesus speaks with Moses and with Elijah about the exodus that he is going to accomplish at Jerusalem. That is the words on the page. The exodus he will accomplish at Jerusalem. When Christ was killed on the cross, bearing our sin, he entered into exile for us. He was forsaken by God for us. And then at his resurrection, he returned from exile and brought with him all the blessings of heaven. All who trust in Christ are given these blessings. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Jesus has accomplished the greater exodus for us so that we might dwell with him in blessedness for all eternity in the land the Lord will give us. So whenever you see these patterns of land and exile from the land and sojourning and being exiles and all of this stuff and then being brought back into the land, think Christ was exiled for us at his resurrection. He returned from exile to bring us all the blessings of heaven and has guaranteed us that we will live with God in the land that God has promised us forever on the basis of what he's accomplished. So whenever you see, in other words, patterns in the scripture, friends, are never arbitrary. Never. When you see patterns in the scripture, note them. And consider, don't think about patterns and come up with some wacky thing. Look at patterns and consider, how do they point to God's plan to save sinners? Look at patterns and ask, how should I understand these patterns in light of Christ? It's a good way to go to the scriptures. Let's look at the text itself in verses 10 to 22 of chapter 28. 
Jacob's traveling. He stops to rest one night. In verses 10 and 11, we see that happen. He takes a stone and puts it under his head. Interesting thing to use for a pillow, right? I've never really wanted to do that before. I don't know that I do even still. In verses 12 to 15, Jacob has a dream. This is known by many in kind of colloquial terms as Jacob's ladder, right? You hear that spoken of often. There is a ladder or a stairway in Jacob's dream that reaches from earth to heaven. The angels of God are ascending and descending on this thing. And the Lord is going to speak to Jacob. What does he say? He speaks words of promise. That ought not surprise anyone. It's what God does. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring this land. Your offspring will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. You're going to spread in every direction. And in you and your offspring, all the families, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And we know that's going to occur through the promised offspring, whose name is Christ, whose name is Jesus, I should say, the Christ. Then God says, I am with you. I will keep you and watch over you and bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised you. We're going to come back at the end of the sermon to consider the dream in more depth. So just kind of bookmark that in your mind. We're not done with Jacob's ladder yet. But in verses 16 and 17, Jacob wakes up, wakes up from his dream. He says to himself, surely the Lord is here. He's in this place. He's overcome. He's awestruck. He is afraid because of what's happening. Because this place is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven, he says. Then in verses 18 to 22, the next morning, Jacob sets up the stone that he was sleeping on. He sets it up as a monument, a pillar, and anoints it with oil. He names the place Bethel, right? the house of God or the city of God. And then he makes a vow. If God is going to do all of this, God's going to do all of this for him, then the Lord will be his God. And this stone that he has set up as a pillar will be God's house, and he's going to give one-tenth of all that the Lord gives him back to God. I think we should see all of this, what's going on here with Jacob, as a good thing. Sometimes we wrestle because later on in the scriptures, even in the Levitical law, we're told that God hates pillars. He hates monuments. Well, that's because those were associated with pagan idolatry, right? They were used to worship other gods. Here, what's going on is clearly good. It seems that Jacob is responding to what the Lord has said, which is what we do all the time. So we do in corporate worship. We show up here. To respond, I mean, the Lord speaks, the Lord works through the word and the table and songs and prayers and the like, and we respond to that. That's how it always goes. So it just seems that's what Jacob is doing here. We should see it as a good thing, which brings us to point number three as we just continue to move through the narrative. Point three, we're going to look at chapter 29, verses 1 to 30. This is where things get really like interesting. Point three, the deceiver is deceived. The deceiver is deceived. I call Jacob the deceiver because as we considered last week, this man was just that. He was a trickster. He was a liar. He manipulated. He deceived his father. He deceived his brother with the help of his mom. And now he's going to be deceived by his uncle Laban. Keep in mind in all of this, chapters 29 and 30 is kind of at a human level is a disaster. I mean, you heard it read earlier. It's ugly. It's full of pain. 
It's full of envy and jealousy and just not great stuff at all. Keep in mind in all of that, though, that the Lord has not left Jacob. The Lord has not left his people. God is in this. He is purposeful in this. He is accomplishing his purposes of redemption large scale. Like remember, the Christ is coming. And he is accomplishing his purposes in Jacob's life. And we're going to think about that together. I hope this is faith-giving and sustaining for us. As we see that how even in life, when it doesn't look like God could be in something at all, the Lord does not abandon his people. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 29. Jacob reaches his destination. He comes to the land of the people of the east. Remember, he's going to Mesopotamia, right? To where Abraham hails from. He sees sheep. He sees shepherds. He sees a well. So here again, we have a well and a girl and a guy and all that stuff. And, you know, the singles ministry is called the well and all that good stuff. You, you do with that what you will. We've got all those pieces in place again. And then in verses 4 through 8, Jacob starts talking to these shepherds of the land. He asks them if they know Laban, because they say, we're from that area. He says, do you know a man named Laban? They say, yeah, we do. We know him. They tell him that Laban is well when Jacob asks. And then they say, hey, his daughter's coming, by the way, with sheep, because she's a shepherdess. This is what she did. He asks them what they're doing at the well, given that it isn't the normal watering time. Like, Why are you all hanging out here? The sheep should be grazing right now and then watered at a different time of day. What's going on? And they tell him that they all have to come together like this because that stone that covers the mouth of the well is big. And it takes several of them to move it, apparently. So they have to work together in that. So then in verses 9 to 12, Rachel arrives at the well. We're going to learn a few verses later that Rachel was very beautiful. As soon as Jacob sees her, he goes and rolls away this stone by himself. So this is a like a feat of strength. This is like a carnival trick or something. You know, like hitting the thing that like rings the bell or whatever. Going to impress the girl. That's what it seems like. Some things are timeless, right? Some things never change. So he moves this big stone by himself. And then we're told he kisses Rachel, which could have just been a, a greeting, simply. Not unusual for that context. But then he cries. He weeps aloud. It's kind of a strange way to meet. And then he tells Rachel who he is. He's overcome clearly by just providence is what we would say. Rightly say. I've come here. I've been through a lot. I've had this dream. I've made this vow. I've journeyed a long way. I show up. I'm not sure where I'm going to find my kindred. And I'm meeting Rachel immediately upon arriving in town. So then, after he tells Rachel that he's the son of Rebekah, her father's sister, Rachel runs and tells Laban, her father, about this. Then in verses 13 and 14, we see that Laban is thrilled to see Jacob. Jacob then relays to Laban why he's in town. He tells him all these things. You have to wonder what Jacob's version of the story would have been. It's quite, like, here's why I'm here. You know, like, here's what's going on back at home. Here's how that blew up, and so I had to get out of town. You wonder. So then Jacob stays in Laban's house for a month, going to get to know each other, spend some time together as family. Then in verses 15 to 20, things get even more interesting. As we're going to see in Laban, Jacob has met his match in the art of deception. 
At the end of a month, Laban approaches Jacob about what he wants in exchange for serving him. So Jacob probably hasn't been serving, hasn't been working for this first month, just kind of staying there. But now if he's going to stay longer term, it's like, all right, you're going to work, you're going to do stuff. But since you're family, you shouldn't work for free. What do you want? What do you want me to pay you? What do you want in exchange for working for me? And then we're told, kind of interjected, verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. We're told about Leah, the older daughter. Her eyes were weak, our translations say. This is a Hebrew idiom. It's a turn of phrase that would have indicated that she was not very attractive. And then, of course, we're going to be told that Rachel, her younger sister, is beautiful in every way. If anyone in this whole soap opera that is this deserves sympathy, it's Leah. Right? God will have, I mean, take note of that. Like God will have sympathy on her. We're going to see that as the text unfolds. God will exalt by giving her a number of sons. God will exalt this unloved and unwanted wife. Both Judah, who is the kingly line from which the Christ would come, and Levi, the priestly line, are born to Leah, not Rachel. The Lord, right, he lifts the needy from the ash heap. Right? He exalts the poor. It's 1 Samuel 2. It's not surprising, at least it shouldn't be to us, that the Messiah would come from the unloved wife of Jacob. That God would bring the hope of the world out of the hopeless. Of course, in verse 17, as I mentioned, we're told about Rachel, the younger sister. We're told that she was especially beautiful. In verse 18, we're told that Jacob loved her. So Jacob says to Laban, in exchange for seven years service, I want Rachel. Laban agrees. He says, it's better that I give her to you than that I would give her to another guy. Stay. And then Jacob serves for seven years. And we're told that these seven years flew by because of how much he loved Rachel. It was worth it to him. And then in verses 21 to 30, the time has come for Jacob to marry Rachel. So Laban gathers people for the feast to celebrate the union. It's a week-long deal, man. It's a party. And on the wedding night, Laban brings Leah and not Rachel to Jacob, and they have relations. It's inserted right there. We're told about this woman named Zilpah, who is a female servant given to Leah. She is mentioned because she too is going to become a wife of Jacob and bear him children. And then we get to the next morning, verse 25. It's one of the most just kind of ironic, like interesting verses in Genesis up to now. And in the morning, behold, it was the other girl. We're not told anything other than that. Leah, of course, being brought to Jacob, it's nighttime. Obviously, it's been a big kind of throwdown. We assume that Jacob probably doesn't have all of his faculties about him to not know who he's going to bed with. We're not told other details as well. Laban must have been quite something to do this, to pull this off. It's true regarding Jacob and how he's deceived him. But don't lose sight of the fact that he made his daughters do this. I mean, he made them go along with it. Jacob had been there for seven years. 
He thinks he's working for Rachel. I assume Rachel knows that. Leah's aware of the dynamic. And the women, the, the daughters, are forced into this situation. We don't know how they felt about it. But apparently that didn't matter because this is Laban's show. Jacob is angry with Laban because of his deceit. Now, here, you understand Jacob's indignation, but we can't help but observe that the irony of this situation is thick. It's very fitting for this man, who is quite the deceiver himself, to have been tricked this way. So, as you think about life in this world, you think about your life trusting Christ as one of God's people. God is gracious. Amen. He is merciful. Amen. He keeps us from a million sins. Amen. He keeps us at points from bearing the full weight of the consequences of our sin. Does he not? And. At the same time, we will reap what we sow. The world calls it karma. We know better. It's called reaping what you sow. God will not be mocked, right? Jacob is reaping here what he has sown. It doesn't mean that God isn't still merciful. It doesn't mean that God isn't still gracious. But Jacob is reaping. Laban responds to Jacob. Jacob's angry, and Laban responds by simply saying, well, hey, man, it's not customary to give the younger daughter away first. You should have known that. Don't get mad at me. That's how he handles it. Then he suggests a plan. He tells Jacob he can have Rachel if he completes this wedding week with Leah, and then if he serves for another seven years. So Jacob agrees. He completes the week with Leah, and then Laban gives Rachel to Jacob at the end of that week. And again, we're, in, we're told this interjection, this parenthetical piece about another servant, a female servant named Bilhah, who is given to Rachel. And she too is mentioned because she too will become a wife of Jacob and bear him children. Jacob now has two wives at this point. He will have four, but he has two, Leah and Rachel. And we are told in the text, that he loved Rachel more. Now, how could this go poorly? Jacob serves Laban for another seven years, as he agreed to do. And so effectively, Jacob has served for 14 years in order to have Rachel. Which brings us now to point four. Point number four is entitled, A House Divided. A House Divided, and we're going to look at the rest of our passage. Chapter 29 and verse 31 through chapter 30 and verse 24. Now this section as well, if anything, is, if anything is more painful than the one we just looked at, because this section of the text is full of division and rivalry and jealousy and envy. People who know they're not loved. People who want children and can't have children. It's not pretty. In verse 31 of chapter 29, the Lord sees that Rachel is favored in Jacob's eyes over Leah. And so he opens Leah's womb, but not Rachel's. We should see that as the Lord's compassion on the unloved wife, right? But it doesn't go well. Verse 32, 
Leah conceives and bears Reuben. This is Jacob's first son. His name means see, because the Lord has seen Leah's affliction in her marriage. In verse 33, Leah conceives and bears Simeon. This is Jacob's second son. His name sounds like the Hebrew for heard, because the Lord has heard that Leah is hated by her husband. Just note the names of these people and the significance that they have. And remember, in all of this, this is how the 12 tribes of Israel come to be. This is how God's people, in one sense, get started. May it teach us of the nature of God as our Redeemer. Verse 34, Leah conceives and bears Levi. This is Jacob's third son. His name sounds like the Hebrew for attached, because she, Leah, hoped bearing this son would attach Jacob to her. Then in verse 35, Leah conceives and bears Judah. This is Jacob's fourth son. His name sounds like the Hebrew for praise because Leah said, now this time I'm going to praise the Lord. And as you know, it's been alluded to already. Judah is the one of the 12 sons who is going to receive the greatest blessing from his father. And he is the one through whom the Christ would come. Then in chapter 30, verses 1 to 3, it is reiterated that Rachel is barren. Rachel is painfully aware of the fact that she cannot bear children. And so we are told she is envious of her sister. The irony, right? The pain here. We get this. Leah knows Jacob doesn't love her like he does Rachel, but she's having sons. Rachel may perceive that she's loved, but she's barren. And so she says to Jacob, verse 2, verse 1, excuse me, give me children or I'll die. And then Jacob responds by saying, what are you coming at me for? Am I in the place of God? Clearly, he's the one who's kept you from having children. You might want to take it up with him. Not his finest moment. Every married couple in the room is cringing. Like, this is not going well. This is like watching a car wreck in slow motion. You see it. How many times have you been there? He's basically blaming his wife is upset. He's like, well, you're going to have to take that up with God because clearly that's between him and you. What do I have to do with this? To which Rachel says, well, then take my servant then. Have relations with her. Maybe I can have children through her. So we're going back to the old family playbook. You remember Sarah and Hagar. These, it's interesting, right? These plan B's that humans come up with, they always kind of work. It, they, they go the way that the people plan. I mean, the children are born, but then they immediately backfire with a bunch of pain. Happens again here. We should learn as we even observe things like this in the scripture. Nothing good happens when we try to take things into our own hands, right? In verses 4 to 6, Rachel has given her servant to Jacob. Bilhah is her name. Probably not what I would name my daughter. Uh, she conceives and bears Jacob a son named Dan. This is Jacob's fifth son. Rachel names him Dan because his name sounds like the Hebrew word for judged because God has judged Rachel. From her perspective, verses seven and eight, Bilhah conceives again and bears Naphtali. This is Jacob's sixth son. 
His name sounds like the Hebrew for wrestling because Rachel names him this. In her mind, she thinks, I have wrestled against my sister. There's this rivalry. I'm wrestling against my sister and I have prevailed in what's going on here. And the fact that my servant has now had two sons. Remember, this is how Israel began. God's people began. Clearly, salvation is of the Lord, right? Has to be. Verse 9, Leah sees that she is no longer bearing children. Not to be outdone by Rachel, her sister, she takes her servant now, Zilpah, and gives her to Jacob as a wife. They can't make it up. Jacob has four wives now. Verse 10 and 11, Zilpah now conceives and bears a son named Gad. This is Jacob's seventh son. His name sounds like the Hebrew word for good fortune because Leah says that good fortune has come in the birth of this child. Not so sure in some ways. In verses 12 and 13, Zilpah conceives again and bears Asher. This is Jacob's eighth son. So at this point, he has four sons with Leah, two with Rachel's servant, two with Leah's servant. Asher's name sounds like the Hebrew for happy because Leah says that she is happy and that women have called her such. Then in verses 14 to 16, there's a brief interruption in the pattern of the narrative. But things do not get better. If anything, it gets worse, even uglier. Understatement. Reuben, Leah's oldest son, we're told, at the time of the wheat harvest, goes out and finds these things called mandrakes in the field. Now, what this was, a plant that bore fruit, and these fruits were used for medicinal purposes back in the day, but they were also understood to be an aphrodisiac and also understood to aid in fertility. So that's what's going on here. So Reuben has gone and found these things, and Rachel the barren wife says to Leah, the unloved wife, please give me some of those that your son found. She's hoping, right, that these mandrakes will help her conceive. To which Leah responds, is it not enough that you've taken away my husband? Now you want to take this too? Now you want to go here? So Rachel says, okay, you can have Jacob tonight. Let's, let's cut a deal. You can have him tonight if I get the mandrakes. In her mind, she's playing the odds, right? Leah can have him for a night, but I'm going to have these and I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to have a son. I'm conceived. The whole situation is torturous. Rachel is jealous and envious and feels like less of a wife because she can't bear children. Leah is trying to earn the love of her husband, which she perceives that she does not have. And so Leah effectively purchases a night to be with her own husband by selling her son's aphrodisiacs to her barren sister who happens to be the one her husband loves. Right? And after all of that, Leah ends up being the one to conceive. Next. She conceives in verses 17 and 18 and bears another son named Issachar. This is Jacob's ninth son, Leah's fifth. His name sounds like the Hebrew for wages or hire. Because in Leah's mind, God is giving her her wages for giving her servant to Jacob. Don't know that we ought to agree with that reasoning. Then in verses 19 and 20, Leah conceives again and bears Zebulun. This is Jacob's tenth son, Leah's sixth. His name sounds like the Hebrew for honor. Because Leah thinks or hopes that her husband will finally honor her because she has borne him six sons. I think one of the saddest things in this passage 
is to see over and over and over again how at the birth of each son, Leah is hoping this time maybe he'll love me. Then in verse 21, Leah concedes and bears a daughter named Dinah. And Dinah will show up in a significant way in chapter 34. So remember her name. Now in verse 22, we're told that God remembers Rachel and opens her womb finally. And in verses 23 and 4, Rachel concedes and bears Joseph. This is Jacob's 11th son, Rachel's first. She exclaims that God has taken away her reproach. Joseph's name means, may he add, because Rachel says, may the Lord add to me another son. And the Lord will. Rachel will have one more son. His name is Benjamin. She will have him a number of chapters later. Chapter 35 is where we read of it. And she will die in giving birth to Benjamin. So this is real life here. This is flesh and blood stuff. Which brings us to point five of our sermon today. We're going to consider immediately kind of flowing out of points three and four. Point five, God's work in Jacob's life. God's work in Jacob's life. So no doubt the 14 years that he is in Paddan Aram working for Laban and all of this stuff is going down, even all of this conflict and envy and strife in his home, no doubt that those 14 years have shaped this man. So think, as you think about his life, think about your life. Think of how God works in our lives to draw us and then keep us and sanctify us. Jacob the deceiver was deceived in this text today. So in that, God sovereignly using the sin of Laban was teaching Jacob. God was teaching Jacob something of the depth of his own sin, showing him how corrupt he in fact is. God is teaching Jacob how much pain it causes other people when you deceive them. And you know this, and so do I. Sometimes the best way to understand the pain we cause other people is to taste it and see it and feel it ourselves. In all of that, the deception and the trickery, God was humbling Jacob, no doubt. God is going to continue to work in Jacob. We are several chapters and a number of years away from the infamous wrestling with God moment. That's coming that moment will forever alter Jacob. But God knows what he's doing in Jacob even here, in these chapters, in this period of his life. God is not absent. He's working. All of this deception and conflict with Laban, all of the conflict that ensues in Jacob's family, where he often responds poorly. Sin has real consequences. And God is using those to teach Jacob many things. He does that with us. You realize that. The fact that sin has consequences is because of God, not Satan. We've thought about that before. Just as God, saints, let this be the comfort to you. That just as God knows in our text what he's doing in Jacob's life, he knows what he's doing in yours. Think about how sanctification works. And by that big word, I mean the process by which we are transformed. The way that our lives change. The way that over the course of a lifetime, we're different than we were. How does that happen? It's quite clear as we 
study and survey the scriptures, that God is the one who does that work in people. We don't do that work decisively. God often does it through things. Let this teach us. Think about your own life. Think about the times when you have grown the most. Is it not often through something that you would never have signed up for? Yes. Is it not often something that you would never have planned for yourself and frankly couldn't have planned? You never foresaw it. Is it not so often the case that God works through things that if we could change them, we would? Yet, he works steadfastness in his people through such things. That's because he is so great. He is so wise. He is a God of covenant love that he sanctifies his people through difficulty. Reckon it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because the Lord is working steadfastness in you is not a statement about how good trials are. By definition, they're bad. But God takes them and does good. He works a miracle in us. And he gets the praise for that. And we should trust him to do this kind of work in our lives, just like he has always done in the lives of all his people. See that in Jacob and take heart as life is often difficult. Point six, or the closing reflection, whichever way you want to call it. We're going to think more now, just in our last few moments together, about Jacob's ladder, the dream. This is a very significant thing in the scripture. Jacob's ladder, Jacob's dream, whatever you want to call it, if you're a copious note taker, does not matter to me. Just briefly to remind us what occurred in the dream, this is chapter 28, verses 12 to 15. Jacob falls asleep, he has this dream, and in the dream he has a vision of a ladder or a stairway that begins on earth and has its top in the heavens, and you've got angels ascending and descending on it, and the Lord comes down and speaks these words of promise to Jacob. That's the dream. What's the dream about? What's it ultimately about? I'm going to frame it this way. What Jacob sees in the dream has everything to do with who Christ is. Track with me. What he sees in the dream has everything to do with who Christ is. There's this ladder from earth to heaven. Angels are ascending and descending on it. Where else in the Bible do we hear about that? And from whom? Jesus references this. John chapter 1. Very beginning of John's gospel. Jesus is calling a bunch of dudes to be his disciples. He's just called Philip and Nathaniel to follow him. And you may remember the story where Jesus, upon meeting Nathaniel, says, yeah, I saw you. He's God, right? I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like immediately mind blown and says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus is like, you believe because of that? You're going to see far greater things than that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man, he says. Now, back to Genesis 28. That ladder in Jacob's dream is the means by which earth and heaven are connected. That ladder in Jacob's dream is the means by which the angels of God 
ascend and descend to do God's work in the world. That ladder in Jacob's dream is the means by which God comes to man and speaks to man. That ladder in Jacob's dream is the means by which man meets God. Jesus, friends, is all of that. Everything that ladder is in Jacob's dream symbolically, Jesus is in reality. Just as the ladder is the means by which heaven and earth are connected in Jacob's dream, so Christ is the only way a sinner is ever brought to God, reconciled to God. The only way that a sinner would ever dwell with the Lord. In this dream, Jacob has this vision of a ladder set up on earth, and the language of the scripture is, and the top of it reached to heaven. Do you remember another time when that language was used about a structure? It was earlier in Genesis. Back at Babel, Genesis chapter 11. You remember when man had tried to build something like that. Man had determined to build, quote, a tower with its top in the heavens, close quote. Man had determined to make a name for themselves in Genesis 11. Friends, this is what we do as fallen humans. We build towers. We're proud. We're arrogant. We desire to ascend to heaven through some manner of achievement. And in God's economy, all of that's a problem. It's a problem because we're dependent beings. Everything we have, we've been given wholesale. How much more so is it a problem when it comes to righteousness and our standing before God? We will not ascend to the heavens through our own achievement. And in fact, what is good for us is that we would humbly receive grace from the God who comes down. The Tower of Babel and Jacob's ladder stand in stark contrast to one another in this sense. If you want to know what humanity does, read about Babel. We build towers we seek a name for ourselves. We try to ascend to heaven. We always try to work our way to God. There's a reason. There's a reason why working our way to God in some form or fashion has been an easy sell in the history of the church. It's from the beginning. It's the great problem. We always weave ourselves back into the fabric of salvation. And it's natural for us to think that way. It's why it sounds so good to us. I mean, the whole history of the church bears this out, but the last two centuries are full of theologies and movements that tell people they can and must do something to acquire heaven. But friends, this is not how it works with God. First of all, there's the matter of God's law, how holy it is. We tend to short sell it greatly. We, tend, we live in a church context where we relativize the law all the time. We delude ourselves into thinking we can do it. Its standard is perfect righteousness. And only a person who has misunderstood the law could ever think that he has kept it. And then on top of that, we tend to miss the nature of salvation altogether. 
You see, God is the one who comes to man. Man does not ascend to God. God descends. He condescends. It's what he's been doing from the time he made the world. He comes down. And in particular, he comes down to save us. He does this in our text today. He comes down to Jacob. He comes down to speak to him. What does he say? That, that language that you see in your text, it's a poor rendering where it says the Lord stood above the ladder. You see, even probably, you probably have a footnote in your translation that said, or he stood beside him. That's better. Like he stood over Jacob, but he's standing on the earth talking to him. The Lord has come down to talk to this man. And what does he say? The point of what he says is, I've got you. I will be with you. I will keep you. I'm going to keep my promises to you. I'm never going to leave you. That's what he says. And all of those promises find their yes and amen in Jacob's promised offspring, whose name is Jesus. Yes. So then you may be sitting there as we're landing the plane. You think, all right, but what then should we do? What should we do? Great question. Here's a few thoughts. What should we do? Humble ourselves. Walk. Let's endeavor to walk humbly before our God. We can start there. Stand and wonder at the glory of this God who is holy and righteous and yet is merciful and gracious. There is no one like him. Realize alongside of that, as you contemplate his glory, his holiness, his righteousness. Realize that the only name that we will ever make for ourselves is the name sinner. What else could we do? Should we do? Receive what God has done. Receive what he has done. Receive God's gifts that he gives in grace. Like if you think about the scriptures, Mackenzie and I were talking a lot about this this week in the office. Over and over and over and over again, God shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one who is doing this thing called salvation. There is no other way to read the scripture. I mentioned God's faithfulness in the introduction. That we've seen that in Genesis. Alongside that, Genesis has certainly taught me, I don't know about you, has taught me that if anything, God's grace is greater and deeper than I thought. Like as I look, as we, I trust together, I see a lot of nods in the room, as we have looked at the lives of these people, saints, who we will dwell with forever in the new heavens and the new earth, we have seen how they're just like us, we have seen how their lives were often just riddled with sin and pain and ugly stuff. And yet we have seen God again and again and again showing grace and mercy. We've seen over and over again that it is not about these people. They don't deserve it. It's not about us either because we don't deserve it. We receive, as the saints always have, we receive grace from the Lord who is gracious. 
we come like this, empty-handed to receive what he gives. That's the posture of a sinner before God. Next, so we've thought, what can we do? Humble ourselves, receive what God has done. Third, this is kind of along with number two, but receive from God through faith. So in other words, believe God. Believe his promises. Trust his son. You want one takeaway from today, it's that. Trust him. How do you receive? How do we receive from the Lord? Well, it's by looking away from ourselves, not looking to ourselves. It's by trusting another to have done what I need. It's by looking outside of ourselves to Christ, most pointedly. Far from being a work that we do, trusting Christ is resting from our own works. You see that. Jesus has done enough. Brother, sister, he was his whole life suffering. He was perfected by suffering. That's what Hebrews says. He suffered in his death. He suffered for you to make atonement for your sins. He was obedient his whole life. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He fulfilled all righteousness to be our righteousness. So when you think of Jacob's ladder, think of Christ. And when you think of Jacob's ladder, think of Babel. When you think about Jacob's ladder and Babel in your mind, remember these things. We do not need to build towers. We need a cross. We do not need to build a great city. We need Christ. We do not need to make a name for ourselves. We need to be given a new one. And in Christ, we have. The only name, it turns out, that matters. Saints, the whole plan of God, and by the whole plan of God, I mean the entire plan of God, is that we would trust his son, and that through union with his son, we would be declared just, justified, that we would be transformed, sanctified, and that we would be finally saved, that is, glorified. This is how God operates. This is Christianity. It is a religion of divine accomplishment, not one of human achievement. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his grace that we might believe his promises and that he might work in our lives continually. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you just as needy as we were before the sermon started. We pray that you would come and meet with us even now as your word has been spoken and preached in our midst. Drive it deep into our hearts and minds, we pray. We ask that you would give us faith, give us grace to trust all of your promises. Give us eyes to see the ways that you're working in our lives, even like you worked in Jacob's. Help us to trust you to change us so that one day we will look up and we will think, I am not like I was back then. And may we give you all the praise for that. Continue to work in us as a church that we would encourage one another's faith, that we would be used of instruments or as instruments in each other's lives for good. May we encourage one another toward righteousness. 
May we keep one another from sin. So we pray for you to do all of these good things. You are the one who has to. We pray for you to do them in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, and thank you, brother, for bringing us the word. What an awesome thing it is to ponder the wonderful salvation that the Lord has procured for us. It's mind-blowing. And as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper and we think of the things that we just heard, just as Jacob was in the midst of his sin, has to flee basically his home and go somewhere else. And in the midst of the turmoil, he's just tired and lays down to rest. And God comes down to him. As our brother reminded us, we don't ascend to heaven. The God descends to man to bring salvation. And obviously to reiterate and remind Jacob that he, that God has him, that he will not leave until all his promises will be accomplished. And obviously that changed Jacob's lives, life, and he ended up building this sort of monument uh, as a reminder of the place where God spoke to him and the, the place where God reiterated that promise and the place that forever changes life. In the same way, um, God left us a similar reminder through the sacraments, through the Lord's Supper, to remind us about when Christ came down, bridging the gap between heaven and earth, to save his people so that he may take us to heaven with him. So the supper reminds us of exactly that. So let's read the account of the Lord's Supper from Matthew. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given things, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The supper reminds us of this new covenant in which Christ sacrificed himself for us and saved us and gave us his righteousness. The supper is here to remind us and confirm that Christ indeed died for us and that all the things that you promise to us are assured as that cup that we drink and that bread that we eat. And just as sure as we hold these physical elements, Christ has done everything for us. The supper is for a spiritual nourishment and also to give us strength to further engage in this life. As things get tough, as our faith is weak, the Lord reminds us through the supper that he got, has us and that he gives us the strength. And also the supper is a bond and a pledge that we have in this communion with Christ and one another. And finally, maybe the table gives you anxiety because you're thinking too much about yourself and how you failed. And that certainly God cannot accept you, but in Christ, he has made you righteous. And this table is for sinners, for people who understand themselves to be poor and weak and needy and have no righteousness that they could offer for their sins. But instead, they're coming to the table trusting in Christ and in him only that he saved you and that his righteousness is yours. So in a few moments, we'll be coming up and taking the, the table. Um, if you're visiting with us, um, 
You don't have to be a member of CBC to partake of a supper, but we do ask that you are a baptized believer and that you're not under the disciplinary action of a gospel-preaching church. In a few moments, we will have a moment of quiet prayer in our seats. I do encourage you to use this time to ponder upon the things that we've heard this morning, to thank Christ for the sacrifice that he's done for us, uh, to confess sin and uh, to lay everything at the feet of Christ as you come and partake of a supper. Um, after a few moments of silence, music will start playing. At that point, please do form a line down the center aisle and come and take the elements and go back to your seat through the external aisles and you can partake of the elements there. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's stand together. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, some bright flaming tongues above. 
takes a mountain fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Hither to thy love has blessed me. Thou hast brought me to this place. And I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger brought me with his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a feather, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy course above. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full array in blood washed linen, how I'll see thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power keep me till I'm home with thee at last.
and sisters receive this benediction from the word of god now may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely and may you and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it you're dismissed greet one another in the lord christ completes 
He's working me.